You're listening to the Surgeons of Horror podcast. Look at me. Look at me, teacher. Hello, welcome to the Surgeons of Horror podcast. Its purpose is to dissect and discuss classic horror films and new horror films um, as the, we keep our fingers on the pulse and uh, generally kind of talk about the films that uh, affected us when we were kids or the films that affect us now. Uh, those that have been listening to our current season of our podcast, we've been delving into the early works of Toby Hooper um, and we've chatted around Texas Chainsaw Massacre uh, and the like. Um, and we also then went on to chat around Eaten Alive, which was his follow-up movie, um, which had kind of a bit of a poor result um, off the back of that. And so it kind of left um, Hooper kind of sailing in the wind a little bit. Um, like he had lost lost a bit of his traction of that he picked up in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, and that kind of leads us to his next kind of port of call, which would be uh, Salem's Lot. Uh, a miniseries told across uh, two parts um, and this was kind of where he kind of found his ground again and it was enough to elevate him to push him forward into the likes of the fun house poltergeist life force invaders from mars um, and basically the peak of his career um, was around that time frame and so it, to me it all started from salem's lot before we get kind of into the nitty-gritty uh, i should probably introduce myself my name is saul Murty. And I'm joined uh, this podcast by Nick Alford. Welcome aboard, Nick. Hello, mate. How are you? I'm good, man. I'm good. I'm good. Um, it's good to have you on board again. And I know you were around for our Texas Chainsaw discussions, so I know that you are familiar with Hooper's, or at least one of Hooper's works. Um, so b- before we kind of, uh, I guess, start talking about the film, um, like, as I said, it was told across two parts. Were you aware of this movie, or like, where, where did this fit on Nick's sphere of, of, of movies um, before you uh, before we kind of start chatting around the film well I've sort of mentioned this before but one of the reasons why I do this podcast is it's kind of taken off a, a bucket list act of movies yeah. I saw, I saw the video case of as a kid but wasn't allowed to watch and even the video case the VHS case would scare the shit out <laughs> and Balaam's Lot was definitely one of those yes it's always been something I've been aware of ever since I was pretty young, um, but never actually got around to watching. And so this was a great excuse to watch it for the first time. Yes. Unfortunately, means I, again probably won't have the rose-tinted glasses <laughs> some other people may have. Yeah. Grew up with it, so don't hate. Don't hate, don't hate the Nick. Um, yeah, yeah, look, I, I completely understand. But again, I, I feel like um, with these movies, though, like that you're kind of discovering you know, for the first time that are considered classics in their own right uh, because it, you know we are hitting that kind of 80s period which was so um, notorious for horror particularly in the you know as we've said before in, in the video hiring market VHS um, blockbuster videos and all that jazz um, and uh, this was definitely one of them you know and, and the fact that it had Stephen King, King's name attached to it as well was a, was a huge plus which we should probably say that this was based on the novel, uh, Stephen King's novel, Salem's Lot, as well, which is a, uh, a very short novel. It's only about 400 pages long. Um, 
Um, but it's kind of can still considered to be one of his best novels, uh, even though he wrote it. It was probably like, I think we were saying offline, it was like the second novel he wrote. Um, and I did delve back into it as well, just to kind of get a bit of background to the story before I rewatched this film again. Um, and I think the only thing I w- I'll say about the novel at this stage, I may kind of come back to it in our discussions through the movie, is that to me, Salem's Lot is Stephen King's love story to uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula, um, just yeah. set in a modern setting, albeit when it was written a modern setting in the 1980s. Um, and and the reason I say that is it's uh, the book is almost written from a like a diary perspective, a bit like how Bram Stoker's Dracula was, and it's uh, about three characters that kind of narrate the story as it goes along. Again, very similar to Bram Stoker's Dracula. It's the same kind of characters that are journaling the events that unfold. And this is the world that we see in. Predominantly, it's the the main character, Ben, that we follow. Um, but, yeah, it's interspersed with a few other characters, as I said. And because of that, it was a really easy read. Like, it... You, you were, it's easy to kind of flow through it. You could pick. It's one of those books you can just pick up and put down, um, and pick up again, and, and instantly come back into the flow of it. Um, so I, I can see why it's considered one of his best. And you know, I, I'm a huge Stephen King fan, and I, yeah, I was, I, I did actually like the novel. I have to admit. It's funny, sir, because for me, with like most Stephen King books, you know, or translations into movies, yeah, um, it's. It's about a writer or a teacher yes. you know, in, a, in a small town. Yes. And you think that, you know, David Soule, the lead, is actually uh, Stephen King, you know, projecting himself with that character. Absolutely. But then, he, as the, uh, but then as you're introduced to the younger boy, um, yes. you actually realise, well, maybe that's more Stephen King himself. It's a misunderstood horror fan, you know. Yeah. Yeah. In a small town. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Absolutely, one hundred percent. That's that's exactly right, and it does does feel that way with um, with the kid um, with the kid character. And maybe it is maybe it is kind of like him because that's something he's like Stephen King's renowned for is that he was very good at writing uh, kids in stories. I mean, you see it in you know anything from like Stand by Me to it, um, and he, and a lot of that he the characters that he writes about in his books are based on his own friends from school time as well. So there's, I think he finds that uh, fluidity comes quite easily in his writing when he's writing to that age, or definitely during that time frame when he was writing. Rather the story more about focusing on the kid mm. than David Soul, because in the movie anyway, at least, he just sort of turns up, doesn't really explain what he's doing, Works out everything straight away, has all the answers straight away. Yeah, you know it seems a little bit easy for him. Whereas the kids, kind of, he's got his own backstory because he's got the knowledge. And, yes, you know he knows not to let vampires into the house. And it's all you know. Yeah, he seems to be clued up, and I'm, I'm more interested in that character. Like, yeah, as you can see, it's very lost boys. Yes, yes, yes. Um, yeah, I like that. The yeah, and you're right. That sorry. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I'm sorry. I'm just looking up the kid's name while we while we're digressing because I've forgotten it. It was Mark. His name's Mark in it. Um, but yeah, it's. Um, it, it, I, I get exactly what you're saying, but I, I feel like this this is probably an instance where the book 
serve better in in giving Ben's background because it isn't very. It, there, I think there is a throw-off line in the movie, but Ben is originally from Salem's Lot, um, and he returns yeah. because he's because he has this connection with this house, um, and it's based on. And it's the one actually really powerful scene. I know we're jumping ahead, but it's the one powerful scene I felt from this miniseries is that um, monologue that uh, Ben gives about the nightmare he had of going into the house and seeing yeah. this creature inside of it. He, it's almost like lift, like the words itself are almost lifted identically off off the page of Stephen King's book, um, and they don't really. Uh, he doesn't do a flashback in the movie either it's just purely David Soul's kind of telling of it and I think that worked personally um, you could have easily have just done a throw you know like a, one of these kind of <laughs> back in the day yeah, yeah. Um, and, and they didn't they chose to kind of just let uh, David Soul narrate it um, and it's a great moment but he has the point I'm saying though is that he has this connection with his house and the reason he comes back to um, Salem's lot originally is because he wants to buy that house and basically uh, write his novel around it but ultimately destroy it is, is his point because he feels like the house has this evil entity to it um, but he doesn't when he gets to Salem's lot somebody has already bought the property um, and all this is in the book I just don't think it's it, they don't really reveal that like you said he just kind of turns up and meanders around a little bit um, yeah. Although, I think is it kind of coincidental the same time that he arrives, you know, it all starts to happen. Is is that kind of? Because for me, you know, I'm hoping this is going to basically be me asking to fill in gaps. Yes. Maybe felt like there were just massive chunks taken out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even certain places, and, you know, found certain things, and I feel like there was more, way more story there. Yeah. They the the idea behind it. So like. Uh, and again, as I said, I feel like it's probably um, it's probably dealt with better in in the sto- in the book, the novel, again. But uh, Mr. Barlow, who's played by James Mason in this film, he's like he's kind of like he's awesome in it. <laughs> yeah, he's so good. There's one bit I really like, uh, like a performance-wise of his. But I'm, I'll get to that down the track when we get a bit more I into. Know <laughs> I can guess what it is. Yeah. Well. Okay, we'll see. We'll see if you're right when we get to it. Um, anyway, I, I thought it was, it was just it was beautiful. Um, but yeah, so his character is um, uh, almost like uh, he's like well, how would you describe him? He's a bit like a caretaker character of of the main kind of Dracula baddie villain character in this, Mister Straker. Sort of eagle, eagle yeah, Doctor That's right. That's right. Yeah. And he's there to assist, and they have this mirage of, of this kind of uh, antiques. Uh, uh, ha- what am I trying to say? Sorry, antique shop. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it's um, and they have this kind of setup there, and it's basically just so that they have an excuse for being in town. Um, and yeah, and he's um, yeah. So his character is, uh, and I've totally lost the plot of why we why we were talking about. Oh yeah. Um, so uh, Mr Barlow's character so he's new to town like um, David Saul's character um, Ben he's also new 
So the idea being is that uh, when these murders start happening, Ben is automatically a prime suspect, because uh, as well as Mr. Barlow, right? And they play on that, so it's almost like more of a bit of a thriller at this point because you want to side with Ben because he's the one narrating the story, but the all the locals don't, you know, because Ben is is this odd character. Whereas Mr. Barlow's this kind of very he's a he's a businessman, he's, you know, self respected, he comes with a with a backstory of you know, that's a solid backing to his uh, credentials, you know. He's almost a bit more likable than Ben. Yeah. He's up and he's just like, Hey, I'm a cool author, you know. Yeah. And, and he's yeah, not very likable at all actually, a bit of a dick. Yeah, 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 that's right. He is, and I think, and I, I think that's the thing, and I, that's that definitely comes across more in the book, as I say, because it's he he's he has quirky habits. He keeps to himself because he's a writer, right? But he keeps himself. He just shuts himself up in his room, so he's a bit of an oddball. But he does strike that relationship with, um, yeah, he strikes up the relationship with the Susan character in it, who in this film was played by Bonnie Bedelia, otherwise known as you know Die Hard. Come on. <laughs> Awesome. Polly Gennaro. <laughs> That's it. That's it. That, it's, it's so hard for her to shake that character, huh? Um, even when, like, um, this was out, obviously, before that movie had come out. But I just noticed that she crops up. I was looking at her cred- uh, credentials just now, and she's also in another Stephen King film, Needful Things. There you go. Oh, yeah. Um, which I believe is the one with... I um, can't remember his name. Ed Harris. He's in that movie too. Is he the bad guy? Is he the, the shop owner in that film? I, can't, I honestly cannot remember. It was one of those movies I watched as a kid and I haven't watched it since. So I, I couldn't tell you. Cannot remember. Yeah. Um, which doesn't bode well for the movie. Maximum Sido is the bad guy. Yeah, yeah, yes. Oh, that's right. I think you're right. Yeah, I think Maximum Sido is... Yeah. That is correct. Um, yeah, cool. All right, so let, let's kind of... I guess let's take a little look at this... this um, uh, the plot line of this movie. I and mean, we kind of started talking about it a little bit. Um, but just to kind of go back to the very beginning and then we'll jump back to where we were again, is the movie does open with with uh, David Saul's character, Ben, and the kid character, Mark. And they're in, like, this Catholic mission and they are preparing themselves for what seems like a disaster on the horizon um, you know and the talks of that they may potentially have to go back to um, Salem's lot to deal with whatever was unfinished before um, before then it then jumps to uh, two years earlier and then we pick up the story as we've been discussing Ben arrives in town he's new and he's there to write a book about the local haunted house that's called Marston House um, and that's where he discovers it's been purchased by uh, a European antique dealer called Mr. Straker, along with his partner, Mr. Barlow, who's, as we said, James Mason in this. Um, so he does go and visit the house, uh, but then he ends up renting a room in like this local board, board room, board house. Um, and he starts to kind of um, get in touch with his youth a bit and understand, you know, because he has this connection there. Um, and, yeah, feels like he's 
reminiscing a little bit and then he st- he meets Susan Norton as we said played by um, uh, uh, Bonnie Bedelia um, and then um, he yeah there's a moment where he meets her parents and it's all this kind of very nice nicely kind of stuff going on um, we learn that Susan's been seeing this other guy in town who's called Ned who's a bit bit of a rough character so everything's kind of very it's a very slow pace isn't it at this point did you find that yeah. like really quite incredibly slow there's a lot of build up to this um, before stuff starts happening um, and they, they're trying to introduce all these characters yeah that's right I was just no real effect on the story no when he you know when you mentioned trying to find a boarding house yes and he, he turns up and they say, oh, yeah, try this place around the corner. And, and he goes and stays there. And, and the whole affair between the real estate agent yes. and his member of staff yeah. has nothing to do with anything. has no effect on the story. Yeah, yeah. It, def- it doesn't come into play. Yeah. It definitely... Is, is there something in the book? Yeah, like it plays on it a lot more. Like it has... like. It feels more like an, uh, the, um, the book definitely comes across as a bit more of an ensemble um, story. Like it, the characters in the book are, are a lot more uh, fleshed out. There's a lot more narrative to it. So there is a bit more background to the the couple that are having the affair and, and the stuff that happens along the way. Do you know what I mean? So it's... Um, yeah, there's, it definitely lends itself more because... The whole purpose of the fil- of of the book is that there's people obviously start dying and then they become these vampire-like creatures, and it's almost like a disease that's spreading across the town. Um, and and we get to see that unfold in the book, whereas this doesn't. I felt like this doesn't really play on that too much in the movie um, as much. Um, you know, like. I'd, just to digress for a second like you know um, I think it was Warner Brothers that had acquired the rights to Salem's Lot quite early on before it then uh, before then moved into kind of TV land um, and a lot of people attempted to try and write a script for it and I think he, uh, even Larry Cohen the writer-director Larry Cohen even had a try yeah. of it and and Stephen King had come out saying, like, it was just awful. Like, the, the stuff that was being delivered, like, nobody could really kind of capture it in the script. And it wasn't until uh, it was decided to maybe turn it into two parts for a TV series that it started to kind of gel a little bit. But I think the problem with that, and I know that you've discussed this with me offline, is that uh, it gets saturated as a, as a result. Um, and it was applauded at the time for some of the effects within the movie and I, I kind of get that but to me it never really it never felt scariness you know not the way not the way it did like if we look at it as a as an as another example and I know that came a few years after but there there were moments in it which are harrowing you know when you watch it and I never really got that from this film I don't know like, did you would you agree to that or 100% yeah, yeah. but there are a few things just didn't didn't date as well. Like I mean, the yeah. horror, you know, it doesn't show the monster. Obviously, it's a, you know, we, we always bang on about that one, but they kind of the suspense isn't built like a horror movie. No, it feels more 
there's the bad guy hold on the bad guy for a bit yep. for far too long and you just get to recognise it and not really there's just no real fear and the thing yeah. that also takes from it as well for me was was the uh, the music yeah. it was very much dun, dun, dun. yeah yeah no um, very much so yeah it's of the time it may have been okay but it felt more like a parody watching it now yes and there was obviously horror done very well in what was this made 79 wasn't it yeah, um, 1979, yeah. That yeah. really wouldn't still, yeah, but it would still fear in you. But this one, it just felt very simple, yeah. straightforward by the numbers. Because um, it's like, like you said, it's apparently Stephen King, you know, just wanted to imagine Dracula yes. in a small town. Yes. Which is exactly what it is. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. But there's, there's, it's hard to find people to care about. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That is, that is true, I guess. And you don't like. I guess that's why you to go back to what you're saying about you. I guess the only person you really connected with personally was the kid Mark. Uh, yeah, yeah. That I saw, you know, his his mate coming in through the window. Yeah. And I'm oh wow, well you know this guy's he obviously lives and breathes this stuff. This yeah. Is I thought that was really exciting. I did. Yeah, you care about him then, don't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, are, I mean, I, mean, I, I think like, I, I think if anything, like what this movie did do, and I, is that it, um, I, because I've I've been kind of looking through Hooper's journey, his story arc, and I know what's what's coming next as well. I think for his, from his career point of view, this movie was enough to uh, solidify him as a director. Because he he did what he was asked to do and he pulled it off, and he actually successfully made the TV series. To at the time, people did find it a little bit scary. Um, obviously, as we've said, it's dated now. But it was enough. He did enough there to people to kind of respect him as a director in the industry. You know, yeah. So he did enough. I you know at the time to kind of with Sam's lot for people to go yeah he's a bankable director he can get the job done he was given a bigger budget to what he was used to as well and he was able to kind of um, you know basically adhere to that as well so um, and like some of the some of the stuff he does in it is like he does play on that kind of you know less is more thing like he, he we don't often get to see or we get glimpses of of the creature at first you know the um the Mr. Straker character, like, you know, we see a bit of his hand, uh, you know, in the front, you know, forefront, um, when the estate agent guy gets attacked. Um, and then like the one big jump scare is, is in the jail's jail's house, isn't it? Where his face suddenly lurches into, into shot. Yeah. So he did, he was very good at, I think it's probably one of the only times we see his face until the climax too. Um, so he was very good at playing with that, I think, and I think that's why, you know, it was it came out quite. Critics kind of like applauded him for that at the time, um, to kind of play with the senses a bit. As I said, like these days, you look at it and it does feel a bit dated, um, as we said. Um, I haven't seen the other adaptation of Rob Lowe, but it's got Rooker Harrowing, so I imagine it's more <laughs> the gentleman vampire. Yeah, yeah, I can, I can see that. <laughs> Because yeah. when I, I saw, I looked into that, and I'm like, 
how can he play the same character? It's, they're completely different. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, so yeah. He doesn't look anything like that in the book. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Exactly. So that was a big notable difference uh, between the two. Um, so essentially, like uh, to come back to the to the uh, to the film narrative, then. So like basically, like we have, um, like you said, we have the uh, we pick up with the estate agent, as I said, and he's assisting Mister Straker moving into the property, you know, through the help of. Um, uh, I'm going to just say James Mason's character because I can't I keep forgetting his name. Mr. Barlow, that's it. Mr. Barlow is the vampire, right? Oh, yeah, sorry, I'm going the wrong way around, aren't yeah. I? Mr. Straker. I so, thank yes. you. Oh, crap, okay. I'm not one to make people, I thought. No, 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 you're absolutely right. I'm, I'm confusing the two. Straker is is Richard, uh, is Richard um, James Mason's character and then Kurt Barlow is the vampire. Sorry. Apologies. Mr. Barlow. Mr. Barlow. That's right. Um, yeah. So no, we <clears throat> we have um, we have the two uh, two guys that are moving. Uh, it's, again, this is very similar to Dracula. Like it's the the coffin or the box that's filled with dirt, and it's yeah. it's got the vampire inside it, and it's being transported to the house. Um, so yeah, that's yeah, that's right. Um, and so the Myerson character. He's played by Jeffrey Lewis, uh, who some people may know as um, Any Which Way You Can, uh, Clint Eastwood, Psychic. Any Which Way But Loose. Yeah, those movies. Uh, oh, and other people might know him as the dad of Juliette Lewis as well. So he crops up in this, and he's, I quite like his performance in this, actually. He, he's also like the Grave Digger character in it as well. So there's this, um, you know, he's a bit of a. Uh, dog's body kind of character within the town um, and so they kind of move they basically are in charge of moving the stuff into the into the house and they they think the place is a bit sus and they think there's something odd about the coffin um, they basically drop it off into the cellar and then uh, later on yeah uh, and then we get the incident with the, the two kids, the two uh, boys going through the woods. Um, and they kind of, again, this is played up a lot more in the book as well. But essentially they get attacked in, in the night and as they're going through the woods. And one of them turns, one of them's missing, but the, the older one turns up at, the ha- at their, his own house. And he ends up getting sicker and sicker as it goes on. Um, and they actually find the brother the younger brother dead um and at that same night the uh real estate agent character is attacked but not before so they do this whole scene before don't they where he he's having this affair with this woman and and the guy comes back and he um pulls out a gun and basically you know gets the guy to put it in the, the gun in his mouth um and he pulls the trigger, but it's blank, and it's just he just wants to scare the guy, and he do, and it does. He succeeds. The guy goes running out of the house, but he then comes face to face with uh, Mister Barlow, the the vampire character. Okay, your question. Yeah. Is, even though he watched it like a few days ago, there's still yeah bits I've forgotten about. That. Bits you've forgotten. It's, yeah, because. <laughs> that's the part where like the shadow fills the screen. I think. That's it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, like, 
You see, it, it looks like a hand, like it looks like a hand, and then it kind of completely covers the screen. Yeah, because yeah, this sort of comes into play for me a few times the way Mr. Barlow, he knows exactly where to hang out. It, it feels like he's always in the right place at the right time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it just happens to be in the right moment to kill somebody. The husband character, by the way, uh, of the the one that's being cheated on is um, George Zunza. Um, to me, he's Deer Hunter. He's the dude on the piano in The Deer Hunter. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's also, oh, God, me as well. There's someone else for me. He was Crimson Tide. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'd yeah. like to sound highbrow and go Deer Hunter because I do like that film. I love The Deer Hunter. One of my favourites. It's hard to watch though, but I do like I do like that movie. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. <laughs> yeah, that's it. There's a lot of faces in this movie, actually. There's a lot. Um, I just try to think. Going back to David Saul, though, as well. Saul. Um, oh yeah. So he had he'd been well and truly established as Starsky and Hutch by that point, hasn't he? Yeah. That, that's the only thing I was just quickly having a look at. It's worth mentioning though, too, and I should mention that he was Starsky. He was one of the stars. He was either Starsky, Starsky or Hutch. <laughs> yeah, I think he was Hutch. Um, so yeah, uh, but yeah, he like you know from my childhood, I grew up on Starsky and Hutch. Like, and I loved it. Um, so I kind of always associate him with that character. You know, um, oh, yeah, he sure. was a bit. He was in a lot of like TV stuff along the way. Though basically, he's been in a lot of TV stuff. That's kind of where he's made his career, really. Yeah. The other person was... James Mason from Lolita. Yeah, James Mason, come on. James Mason, hello? James Mason, hello? Yes! <laughs> oh, that's a really dodgy, dodgy accent. Or... In, or... <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. Uh, yeah, so now there's a lot of, lot of good kind of cast... Uh, cast characters in this uh, movie which says says a lot about the film obviously he had enough to entice people to come uh, come and be involved with the film yeah so then we so the estate agent guy is also killed as I said in, in the narrative uh, and we start getting this point where vampires just are kind of popping up all over Salem's lot uh, the kid the, the, the older kid is visited by his undead brother in, in the night with the that's this is the shot that's kind of talked about a lot where you see his brother floating outside the window um, yeah scratching at the window and saying let me in um, and he does he lets him in and then he does this kind of look to camera and there's a slow slow-mo fade across to his face as he bites his brother's neck um, so yeah. then so then the kid gets rushed to hospital um, and at the same time uh uh, I think something gets. Uh, they they discover this kind of fabric, black fabric in the woods. The, uh, the one of the police or the sheriff does, and they pres- they start kind of trying to pin it to Mister Straker and potentially he's one of his suits. Uh, and he's huh? The whole suit thing. The whole yeah. suit thing. Yeah, that's right. Th- this is the bit that I was talking about earlier. I don't know if this is the if this was the bit that you were thought of too. 
Um, but um, James Mason playing Mr. Straker, he's he's basically saying, well, I'll bring the suit in. Like he's demanded, he's been asked to bring these suits in. And he goes, well, I own two black suits. I'll bring them both in, you know. Um, and to try and deny his connection to this missing child, essentially, because he's become one of the prime suspects. Um, and I might be jumping ahead, but with the scene where he actually does turn up with the suit, this is the bit that I was referring to. Right. Oh, really? I got it wrong. Sorry. No, no. It's like all it is, right? Is he give he does this smirk, um, and you, and as if like he he knows that he's got the upper hand, right? Yeah. And he get he parks the car up. He reverses it into this driveway, and he's just he is cock of the walk in this moment, and everything about his character to me was just it was was spot on perfection as a performance in this uh, and he turns up to the sheriff's office he delivers his uh, the two suits as requested and you know there's no there's no damage to it and he even says I expect to re- I expect to be reimbursed if there's no if there's any damage that come to the come to them and, and then he yeah. casually walks back out again with this again with this huge grin on his face um because he's got him, he's got him done. He's got him sussed, and I just, I just loved his performance in that. I just like he's, he just, he does it very subtly, um, but it's enough to know that you just go, yeah, I hate you. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's a it's a great moment. Um, anyway, as I said, I may have jumped ahead a bit because I know we there's a, the whole next section is about the sick brother and, um, and who's the one that's in hospital. Um, and he's he's the dead brother keeps turning up and feeding off him. Um, and eventually he di- the kid dies, and that's when he visits Mark at the window. And this is the bit that you said that you kind of liked because Mark knows he knows he's savvy enough to know how to fend him off with the crucifix, his crucifix thing. So the kid. Yeah, is that the scene that's shot in reverse, or that's reversed? I should say. Ah, uh, I think so. Yeah, that rings a bell. Window scenes where um, yeah, you can see all the smoke sort of. Yes, you know, that's right. Yeah. yeah. And um, oh, we, I completely missed a bit too because again, this is a bit more prominent in the in the novel. But Ben's character, he befriends this old te- his old teacher. Yeah, that relationship seemed really random. Yes. He was obviously a bit of a fan because he's read the books. And yes. Said, oh, the books will never happen without you. Mutual appreciation. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's and right. It doesn't take take too much to get him on board as a vampire hunter. <laughs> no, that, I know. Okay, so this is the thing. So this character, he, he is the Van Helsing character, right? Um because he's the one that, like, and this is where I don't think it really plays enough in in the in the movie, because he's he's the one that he's got all the knowledge. He's the one that knows all about the history of vampires. He's the one that first starts suspecting that there's vampires happening in town. He says he's the one that approaches Ben and says, "You're gonna think I'm crazy, but I think I think Salem's lot is rife with vampires." Um, and so he's the one that goes, but he's also an older guy. So he becomes. I think. I think they do show this bit because he. He has a heart attack and he ends up in hospital. So he becomes um, out of action. So he can't actually help Ben. You know, off the off the off the vampires when when the shit hits the fan. 
Um, but yeah, he's 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 the he's the professor, right? He's he's the old old teacher. He's the one that has all the knowledge. He's all this background and details and stuff, and knows what to do. Um, and Ben relies on him too. So when when stuff happens to the teacher character, he and he, that he's not able to assist him anymore. Ben kind of feels like a you know he's a bit lost at sea. He doesn't know what to do, and he kind of wishes his mate was there to help him. And all this is, as I said, a lot more prominent in the book. Mike Ryerson, um, kind of missed a bit too, the Mike Ryerson character, so that's the Jeffrey Lewis character who I said with the Gravedigger. So he also gets attacked by the the vampire kid as well. And and he becomes one of the undead. And he turns up at, um, at the teacher's house who lets him in, invites him in, because he thinks he's just drunk and he's just trying to be neighbourly and invites him in. But in doing so, he has to protect himself because he then realises he's a vampire as well and has to and that's when he has his heart attack and then that, his, his yeah that's right that's right um so uh oh then we get Mrs Glick so the mum dies of of this supposed pernicious anemia um so but obviously she's been fed on by the by the kids too and so she ends up dying um, as well, so a lot of people start kind of essentially dropping like flies at this point, um, and Ben then joins forces with uh, with the doctor, the local doctor. So because the doctor's starting to get a bit sus about what's been going on, um, and the priest, uh, sorry, Mark Petrie kind of teams up, likewise teams up with the priest, because um, the priest is uh, the his Mark's parents are concerned about his obsession with monsters um, and that's why they bring the priest along so they end up kind of having a bit of a relationship there not in a sexual way in a <laughs> in a, in a like, yeah it's, you've got to be careful these days um, and then uh, Barlow then uh, attacks the family here. so this is the point oh yeah that's right so he turns up at the uh, at Mark's house and he kills his parents um, so that was a kind of a big, obviously a huge moment there, and the priest ends up giving up his life so that Mark can escape. Um, can we, sorry. Yeah. In case we're going to move on from that scene. Yeah. That's the scene I thought you were talking about because it's my favourite scene. Ah, okay. So I'll just mention uh, the bit with the confrontation between Barlow and um, the priest. Again, is played out in a lot more detail in in the book because the Barlow character makes the priest question his own faith and in doing so he gets the upper hand over him because he's he's already lost because he's he's the thing that could protect the priest was his it was his faith his religion because you know it all comes down to that uh the religious association and that's what you know that's the whole crucifix thing and that's why they can overpower vampires but the fact that he starts questioning his own faith that's it he he loses the battle between good and evil because the de- the devil's gotten into his ear you know and, and that's where uh Barlow's e- easily over overcomes the priest in the end and kills him so sorry you were going to say about uh James Mason during the scene yeah so well, the, the scene it, exactly what you're saying there for me I, I loved it because it was a test of faith yeah it's okay 
when James Mason you know, confronts him and says, okay, mate, your God that you've never seen before, had no real contact with, yeah. versus my God, you know, see who's going to win, you know, next to this vampire standing right there yeah. in front of him, you know. Yes. You know, are you sure you want to dance, mate? Are you sure you <laughs> the horse you want to bet on? Um, but for me, you know, that, that, that was like the crux of the movie. It's that whole yes. religious aspect's brilliant, the way that's played out. Yes, agreed, agreed. But for me, what really makes this scene is the way James Mason talks. <laughs> it's just like, priest! <laughs> for me, all I could see was, do you know Matt Berry from Yeah, 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 I, I know Matt Berry. Yes. It, it just feels to me like Matt Berry's based his entire career upon that one scene. <laughs> the characters, James Mason, the whole film, just that one scene. Um, and it just, yeah, it just made me laugh out loud. I'm like, oh my God, that's it. <laughs> and yeah, he's just really calling out the priest. And it's, it's where you get to see James Mason sort of really as a proper bad guy you yes probably you know you see him he's the fingers are pointed yes know, is it just because he's new I mean maybe there was a scene before I'm not sure if I'm remembering it properly but for me that's the one where he goes yeah I definitely am a bad guy yeah 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 and he's gonna um but yeah that, that for me was was really good that's right everything you said about um Mason was called on that's that's good and and lucky he's his character is just oozing off the screen like you can tell he's having fun with this character that's right yeah, it's... <laughs> yeah absolutely <laughs> absolutely yeah, yeah. Uh, really enjoyable in that point um, okay so uh, so that kind of scene unfolds then we have the bit at the hospital again with the doctor and Ben and they're, that's where they're examining Mrs. Glitz's corpse and she then wakes up as a vampire um and Miz has to kind of, you know, pulls out the crucifix to kind of destroy her. Um, sorry, sorry. sorry. Yeah. Can we don't gloss over that? He constructs a crucifix out of <laughs> lollipop sticks. <laughs> you know, the, the doctor uses it. Uh, <laughs> okay. Yes. He's aware of vampires around. He's like, this is the only thing between me and getting my face bitten off. Yeah. He's just taking you know, these little bits of. I think he's trying to bless it as well. Yes, yes. I'm just like, oh, I really hope this works, mate. I really do. The, uh, it, it, I'm automatically. Uh, I'm glad you kind of mentioned that, and I apologise for glossing over it because it was hilarious and it probably wasn't meant to be. Um, but I'm automatically. Uh, think of Eddie Izzard because he talks about um, the crucifix and he says in these movies they'll just get bits of sticks and put it across like that um, you know to form the crucifix and he goes so does that mean fingers work so if you just do that with your fingers like so for the sake of podcasters I'm just putting my two fingers across each other to form a cross shape and he goes but then like then anyone could do that anyone could just go ah ah no Bagsy can't touch me got a crucifix you know yeah, and it, yeah. and then he does the whole vampire going oh bugger like all right you got me <laughs> <laughs> like, but it is like that it's like yeah that doesn't hold true like you think like I to me that the mythology only works if it's if it's um, if it's an actual uh, r- religious uh, as if it's been blessed upon you know so it has this and it's, that's why the holy water thing w- would work because it's it's only it's blessed upon so like it has this 
effect on on the creatures. Whereas like lollipop sticks, no, nah. yeah. <laughs> that doesn't matter. That's more the shape, isn't it? It's like yeah, they even skipping ahead, but even when they um they go and grab some holy water from the church, yes, which for me just reminds me of Monster Squad. Ah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Got the holy from the church, and the guy's like, is, "Was it blessed?" And he's like, "It's from a church. It's holy water, isn't it?" I'm like, "No, it's water." <laughs> That's right. Like, That's right. Just going. Oh, I found water in the church. It's got to be blessed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was just in a bucket in the janitor's office of the church. That's blessed, isn't it? Yeah, that'll work. <laughs> yeah, it's in the church. Um, yeah, all funny. Um, yeah, so so then we have that whole <coughs> excuse me. We have that whole encounter in, uh, as I said, in in the in the hospital, um, and um, oh yeah, and that's when uh, they realise. So he realises that he has to try and kill Barlow um, by putting a stake through his heart. But by this point. Salem's lot has just been completely overthrown, um, and sh- and the sheriff says he's leaving town. He says I'm not sticking around. I'm going. And and there's that encounter with Ben and the sheriff. He's like, you can't leave. You've got to save the town. He's, and the sheriff's like, no, fuck this. I'm not. I'm not sticking and around for it. I really like that. Yeah. That was a bit more realistic. Yeah. Like the sheriff's going. Okay, I've seen some weird shit happen. You know, this is about my pay grade. Yes. And he even just says, like, he's going on holiday or something. Yeah, that's right. Why don't you see that more often in the movies? It's like, oh, wow, that's pretty fucked up. I'm going on holiday for two weeks. Let's <laughs> see how we go. You know. When I come back, I'll see if it's yeah. still in a mess or not. Yeah. yeah. That's funny. I like I like that scene, too. I think, again, it felt real and honest. Um, so, yeah, so, but, yeah, so basically the sheriff buggers off. Um, so it basically kind of leaves me as uh, Ben, the Ben character and, and the Doctor as they plan their uh, attack against uh, Barlow um, then Susan, the, the girl you know, the, the female character catches up with Mark who is trying to attempt to break into the house and she follows him inside um, and that's where they get kind of att- uh, caught by James Mason's character essentially um, that, that was good as well because yeah. it's a realistic situation of yeah. how you get her into the house because you know someone walks into a haunted house for whatever reason yeah she's got genuine reasons going there she knows the danger but she has to weigh it in her mind you yes know? yes that's what you know she's another way more likable character really. yeah yeah like, okay, I can either piss off with my family my family are in danger as well I need to get, get to them Yes. Or, yes. You know, let this kid go inside a, a you know, vampire's home. Mm. Yeah. No. I. I can. Compl- right. Yeah. No. I agree. I agree. And uh, and the the character Susan character is really likable in the book too. Like I, uh, you know, you you do kind of really connect with her, and and this is what makes it even more tragic of what then follows um, as it as it unfolds. Um, but yeah, so basically they, you know, they 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 go in and they get caught by um, Straker, and he basically says, "I'm going to prepare you to meet with the master." Uh, Norton and Ben, Doctor, the Doctor and Ben, then turn up also turn up at Marston House a bit later uh, to try and save Mark, uh, but they're unable to find 
Susan in the midst of it all. And it never shows how the kid is going. Yeah, it doesn't do that. And yet in the book again, I feel like I keep praising the book, right? Yeah, <laughs> but in no, the yeah, yeah. So look, in 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 the book, because it's, it's all plays to uh, Mark's fascination not just monsters, but like uh, magic and fantasy. Like, is all everything he's into. Like, and he actually studies like I can't remember if it's Houdini or or somebody like that. So he actually does know how to escape from being tied up. Yeah, yeah. Right, because he's he's fascinated with with uh, magic tricks and illusions. Yeah, it's a bit of foreshadowing yeah exactly yeah yeah so we see all that play out so like and in the book it takes him a long time to actually get out of the knot because like he the Straker character has done a really good job but he keeps persisting with it and he slowly kind of keeps going away with it and he actually surprises Straker by actually breaking out um, and, and I think from memory there's a he, he just he's able to overpower Straker, Straker because Straker's not expecting it and that's how it, and that's how Mark is able to get away. Um, but in this there, so they then kind of um, get caught up. Yeah, so they get caught up with Straker, and Straker kills the Doctor at this point too. Um, and then, uh, but then Mears, oh, I forgot that Ben has a gun. At some, I didn't realize he had. A, yeah, forgot that. I'm kind of forgetting the scene, but he um, he basically at this point he kills Straker with by shooting him dead. Um, do you remember that bit? I did completely because he's, he's up the stairs, he gets this super strength. Oh, that's he right. He's walking there slowly holding a, what looks like a banister or something. Yeah. Like a wooden yeah. hand, and he's just getting shot, you know, he's unloading that entire car. That's right. And he still keeps coming, then it's just like the last bullet happens to do it. Like, oh, yeah, yeah. Didn't see that coming. <laughs> you shoot someone eight times. They're probably gonna, you know, and they're still walking. They're probably gonna be okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or something. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh no, that last one. Oh, thank God for that last bullet, eh? Eh? Like, oh. <laughs> I feel like that scene could have been played out better. Yes. Like, build up tension to it, or whatever. Yeah, I, I, I guess because they wanted to, they want it to be the bad guy, don't like the big bad guys, the 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 thing. This is like this is the one before it you know but I feel like because um, Mason's character has been the face of evil throughout the, this movie it yeah. he, he deserved a bit more of a of a build up and a confrontation rather than just offloading eight bullets into him and him dying yeah. I felt like it needed something a bit more to it yeah yeah um, so they make their way down into the basement to try and kind of kill off Barlow and that's where um, uh, they come across the other, you know, the, the coffin but there's the other door, isn't there, where, where there's, it's almost like a crypt where there's other vampires lurking in there as well Yeah. and it's a, it actually builds up tension again as well with that because this is the bit where Ben's prizing to kind of kill uh, the Barlow character and Mark's sitting with his back to the open that's door yeah. As these creatures are starting to come forward. Yeah, that was that was a good moment. Cause, mm. Yeah, you can see what's coming, and he can't. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's right. That's right. It, it definitely it definitely played on that. And I and again, I think that comes back to what there's certain things that Hooper did in this 
that warrants people people's respect as a director. I think there were certain things he was just doing. He was just ticking the boxes, but he was doing it in a very clever way um, that made made people go, okay, eaten alive must have just been a bit of a turkey. Do you know what I mean? Like he just had a bit of a dud dud yeah. film. Um, and yeah, kind of resurrected his career, as I said, off the back of this. So, um, so we get the climax, as I said, uh, and that's where he, uh, Mark, eventually, not Mark, Ben, eventually drives the, st- uh, the stake through uh, Barlow's heart uh, to kill him, and they set fire to the house, and it burns down to the ground. So he ultimately gets what he wanted. Like he wanted to destroy the building because he felt like it wasn't just about the creature inside of it. He felt like the building itself had a had an energy about it, but, and that's dealt with a lot more too. There's a lot more history to the house. Yeah, weird things right. happen to the character. Anyone that's lived there, weird things have happened to them, uh, and they turn evil. Like, you know. Sorry, it, it feels like Gilding the Lily a bit for that. It feels like it over the top because mm. you know it's it's a vampire living in a house that's kind of enough. It's like. Yeah, but it's an evil house. <laughs> but it's still a vampire. Like, what, what difference does it make? Yeah, 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 true. So there was no, um, and it's just, it's just the whole coincidence of him happening, you know, happening to I, turn up just as a vampire arrives. Sure, sure. I get, I get, though, the way I read it, though, is I get, like, in the book, I get the feeling like the, va- the vampire character resided there years before when Ben was a kid. Right, and yeah. he may have it might it's almost like it's one of his haunts he keeps going back there over over history so these evil the evil that happens within the house are from his own doing so there's so there are creeps huh? yeah it's like a holiday home home away from home um but yeah that that's the way i that's the way it came across to me it was like it was it was a retreat for him and that okay. and the the people that lived there were a result of his of him basically um so yeah so anyway they destroy the house they kind of get out of Kansas um, and but they were unable to rescue Susan then we get this moment where it um, catches up to two years later so that we join where it was at the beginning of the film and they're in Guatemala in this you know as this Catholic mission um, this time trying to make sure the holy water is blessed um, <laughs> but they're um, this is when uh Mark then gets a visit so not Mark Ben gets a visit from Susan who's uh, lying in the bed and he kind of comes up to her and she tries to lure him with his charms with her charms um, and you think that she's succeeding you think he's she because you know the whole mythology like as soon as you're under their spell that's it you're hooked and yeah, you think because yeah exactly exactly so he's he's you think he's falling under that spell you think oh shit okay this is gonna this is how it's gonna end he's gonna he's gonna get killed off but then all of a sudden he he pulls out a stake from behind his back and he drives the stake through her killing her um and it's this and it makes it all the more tragic even more so like in the book because um they you follow their relationship a lot more you know Mm. um whereas she's not hard to get like, yeah, he meets he meets her in the park. She just so happens to be reading his book. Yeah, know, open in the park. Yes, and then later on, she's like, 
And yeah, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. I think it also plays, I, as much as I know you're kind of critiquing that, but I think that also plays on uh, the fact that it's a dead town anyway. Like, there's nothing to do there. So it's kind of ironic that vampires then start killing everyone because it, it was already dead to begin with. There's, it's, it's soulless. And there's nothing to do. And there's this girl who's trying to discover herself and make her way into the world. And she that's why she's enticed by this uh, author that comes in because he not only brings across... Uh, he's, an, he's a knowledgeable guy, but he's from outside of town and that to her is alluring and attractive. Uh, yeah. So, and it makes it makes her journey, as I said, all the more painful because of that because she never does escape really she 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 becomes one of the dead within this deadbeat town um and then so the movie kind of ends with um mark and ben forming a bit of a pact like and they realize that they're going to need to move on again because there's more of these vampires out there and they know who they are and they're going to be constantly hunted throughout the end of time so they need to just get on the road and move on again so kind of almost sounds like it's this uh, the beginning of like an anthology of, of Stephen right, King so. novels to be but which never kind of came about but yeah because isn't, isn't there a return to Salem there is a return to Salem's lot which hasn't got a lot to do with <laughs> with this unfortunately it is it is a sequel to, to a degree but it doesn't have any of the characters in it like Mark and uh, Ben don't turn up again which seems a bit weird doesn't it it's just the location again comes into effect interestingly it was directed by Larry Cohen though, who was the guy that tried writing the screenplay for the original Salem Slot Um, but yeah probably I mean I'm gonna I've never watched it I've got a copy of it so I'm gonna I'll probably off the back of this I'll write up a bit of a review of that one just to kind of follow this podcast I think just for a bit of fun um so yeah but that's kind of where the movie ends so uh, well the two-part miniseries uh, as it were so um your your initial reaction um like i was sort of saying at the start it, it didn't blow me away um it felt, felt very campy yeah uh, but that's obviously because it was you know made in 79 yes um like there are still films, like we're saying, they actually hold up to a mate around that time. Yes, for that's me, right. This isn't one, and I think even Just, as well. Yeah, I think he can do some great stuff really well, like some really capture some great moments. Yeah, but I find he gets the, the basic, the bread and butter stuff wrong. Yeah, and, and you know, I feel like the the, the simple stuff just the, just capturing someone on camera or, or maybe it's in the editing I don't know it feels like it just left a little bit too long yeah. on some people and, and big chunks were cut out and, and, and even the actor who played um, the vampire um, yes said that some of his favourite parts were cut out yeah um, yeah what you want if you're watching a vampire movie is to see what happens because a lot of the times people stand up in the morgue or yeah um, you know they don't have to show everything 
make it interesting. And and for me, it, it didn't really. Yeah. I think the characters just didn't do me. I think Ben put me off. Yeah. He was just like a. He would dip between a grumpy ass <laughs> and then having saved the world and knows everything there is to know about vampires. <laughs> um, which didn't, it didn't really. It's, it, his. Oh, it sounds wanky, but his sort of character arc didn't feel organic. No. God, that's a wanky statement. But it just felt like he's suddenly. Oh, I've got to come back to this house that I saw something creepy in. Just to go back to you, you were talking about other movies that stood the test of time uh, that came out in 1979. Like, an Alien is in there, right? 1979. Um, The the Amityville Horror. um, Even the Phantasm, uh, which came out in 1979, is, you know, you watch that today and that still stands true and strong so like there are a lot and I'm deliberately listing horror movies in that but yeah they, my point was like there was some I mean I know they were more they are feature films and not a TV miniseries but um, and even The Brood oh yeah The Brood David Cronenberg's The Brood came out in 1979 um, that's a great film um, sorry digression to me like there's there's some kind of key points that come out um, for, for the miniseries from my point of view um, from a Toby Hooper aside, the best thing about it is definitely is James Mason's performance. It's it's chilling and icy. I loved it. And he's uh, like I've written um, some reviewer wrote down he was, he's like a calculating spider, and I love that analogy because um, I think that's kind of true. And he's he's delightful to watch in this. He looks like he's having fun, and yeah, I, yeah, I just really. <laughs> Yeah, I did. Yeah. Um, well, this time round, anyway. I I I had seen this. I had seen it very a long time ago. I'm pretty sure I just got it out from the video store. Um, but I like because a lot of it came flooding back to me as I was watching it um, recently, and for the podcast. Um, but yeah, like it's um, yeah, like I said, I, I kind of watched it for the. I read the book in preparation for this before I came around to this, so yeah. And is there one you prefer? I mean, it's probably not a fair question, but do you prefer one over the other? Yeah, I prefer the book, but I don't know if I'm being biased with that though, because I I I really like Stephen King's writing. Like to me, part of that's a bit of a nostalgic thing, admittedly, because he was one of the earliest authors I got into when I was when I was a kid. Um. But I I do like the way he writes, and I I know some some of his novels are a bit hit and miss, um, but I felt like when I was reading this, I I just I kind of liked it. I don't, and again, I don't know whether that's because I'm also a fan of Bram Stoker's Dracula, as well. So like I feel like maybe I am picking up on that, and I love the fact that he's just shifted that and modernised it. And, um, and that's the thing. So. I imagine like we're used to that sort of you know horror movie in a small town vampire kind of story yeah then, then this would have been you know ahead of its time I guess if, if to have this small town modern day scenario yeah with a modern take on Dracula it must have been pretty special when it first came out yeah there's a, a lot of people were really uh, like I said the critics really praised it when it first came out there was a lot of um, yeah people really people really raved it you know at the time um and 
thought they were he like Hooper had executed um, the story really well in his direction. Some critics written standout fright sequences, um, and oh. do you remember finding? Sorry, when did you first watch the movie? This one, I uh, I reckon I would have watched it in my teens. I'm pretty sure I got I would have gotten out. That that seems to be my recollection that I got it out from. Um, it wouldn't have been blockbuster. It would have been like um, co-op. Do you remember co-op in Britain? Oh yeah. Um, yeah, it would have been somewhere like that because they had they had that like rental section in like so it's to, today's equivalent would be like if you're in Australia it's um, it'd be like renting it out from video the video easy express kind of places that you get in like the kiosks stuff. Yeah, Seven Eleven's a perfect example. That's where I'm pretty sure that's where I rented it out from. Um, yeah. So it was yeah. So I had watched it when I was a lot younger, but. Yeah. Sorry, what you were asking that question for a reason or did you, did you actually find it scary when you first watched it? I don't think I did. I don't remember being scared with it. I kind of was fascinated with it. I was always fascinated I've always been fascinated with vampire mythology. It's been something that's always and I, again I think that's why I said like I love the uh Bram Stoker's Dracula as well. Like there's I've always been drawn to that story. And you know, when the first time I went to a fancy dress party, I went as Dracula, right? So, I, I I've always been drawn to, as I said, the vampire mythology. So, I think I kind of liked it from that point of view. I, but I did. It wasn't till obviously a lot when I was a lot older and I'd read the Bram Stoker's Dracula and I got the reference a bit more with it. You know, um, when I watched it this time round, I was I was I kind of a I liked it a bit better, I think, this time round, coming from that point of view. Um, I am, <laughs> British, according to Wikipedia, British film critic Mark Commode has called it very scary and one of the very best screen adaptations of a Stephen King novel to date. Um, wow. Yeah. Um, that's, that's a big call. That is a big call, isn't it? Um but yeah, like I, I, I'd like to. I, I was about to say I'd like to see a modern version done of it. But I, you know, we were talking about the Rob Lowe one, which was in two thousand and four. But I, I've not seen that, so I can't comment. No, um, but it would be kind of cool to see, see a, like a, a, a more modern take on it. I think. Again, like sh- shifting it to today's setting. Um, yeah, I'd be interested yeah. to see it more like a. Yeah, almost like another monster squad, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Um, and really play up the bit where they fuck up. You know, I think that makes it more human. Um, yeah. And oh, just the other thing that um, is that I found kind of interesting. That this is a bit of an ongoing theme as well of uh, of Hooper's, and it becomes a bit more prominent throughout his following movies. Um, but he likes to have like he's often plays with villains. There's always a pair of villains, generally. One is normally a human figure and one is normally a monster. Um, so that's obviously evident in this one where with um, uh, Straker and the, uh, Straker is the, the human and Barlow is the monster character in it. Um, it happens... His next film, Funhouse, does the same thing. We have, we have the father character that, who's the barker of the circus... And he's got this son who's a monster 
within it, you know. And um, yeah, he just plays with that theme a lot. So it's obviously something that he that he finds quite interesting. To mix in the two worlds. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so there's always this partnership of one human, one monster. Um, and also this small town thing he plays. He likes small town horror. Like, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's a remote kind of location in Texas. Uh, then the next movie he did was, even though it was a flop, it was a bit of a flop, Eaten Alive is this remote uh, location in the Florida Swamplands. And then we get small town America here. So, you know... And even Funhouse, the next one is is like you know a small town America again. Um, so he did have this uh, fascination with kind of doing things around the horror in in the in the norm normal everyday kind of place that you wouldn't really expect it. Yeah. And and playing on that. Um, but that's kind of it, really. Like you know, those were. The, I mean, to me, it did feel uh, watching it again. It does feel like a TV. Like it's made for TV. I think that's why it feels dated. A lot of the shots feel dated in that respect too. Um, yeah. You know, um, you know, like it has been. You know, there are influences in there. Obviously, we've mentioned the Nosferatu thing, um, and um, but it was also it also inspired horror films. You know, like we've got Fright Night came off at the back of this, and as you mentioned, Lost Boys. Um, and even uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer the TV series has echoes of of Salem's Lot within it um, to a degree as well so there's lots of there's lots of elements within there but we always end on this question when we review this stuff and I'll throw it out to you so like would you or two questions would you what do you think it still stands today and would you recommend people watch it no, then no. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, for me, obviously, it's because I'm coming with fresh eyes. Yeah. I think maybe it's it's led the way so much that I've, you know, my ignorance of having not watched it, I've seen all the, I've seen it done a billion times before. Yeah. But that's all based on that. Yeah, people have come along. People have come along since, and they've done the same kind of story, but in a better way. They've told the story in a better way. That's it. Yeah, it's yeah. like they've stood on the shoulder of giant giants, kind of. Thing. Yeah, that's right. Um, but it's yeah, I don't think it holds up. Just no. Um, I don't know if that's the direction or the editing or, or even the makeup and costume because I know I had problems with that yes um, yes and would I recommend it not particularly yeah I, I find it hard to give a good reason why someone would I mean you know I, I'm watching it to tick it off the list yeah watch it you know tick done that's in a Stephen King adaptation yeah um, but I wouldn't say oh you have to watch it because Blah. Yeah. I mean, if you're if you're yeah, if you're a real horror fan, I think definitely watch it because it'll mean you can go back to seeing the sort of roots of a lot of the film you films you love. Yeah, yeah. You know, Agreed. A lot, a lot of the other ideas have come from, and whether that's Stephen King or Toby Hooper's. Yeah. See, this is, this is the thing. Yeah. Sure. But I'd say I'd say King King obviously means most of the credit for obviously writing the story or doing such a great job with the story yeah um, I just like 
it's even though it's it's a mini series, it still felt like you could have got that easily into a movie if that's all you wanted to tell. Yeah, yeah. I feel like with a mini series, you could have actually got some of that story in there, and that's why it was frustrating for me. I'm like, why have the longer running time with mini mini series if you're not going to use it? You're yeah, not yeah. Use these characters. Yeah. Um, that it could have easily been in a feature length film. Yeah. Giza turns up, finds them, pops, Yeah, 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 yeah. Pretty much, pretty much. Yeah, I, I think, I think there's a couple of things. I like just, uh, I'll just add to that before we bow out. Is that I feel like um, Hooper generally like just kind of studying Hooper at the moment. And that's why we're looking, at, you know, at his backlog of early films. Is that he's a guerrilla style director, generally, right? And that I feel like when he when he's able to let loose he's more proficient in his outcome and he I mean Texas and he he's very good at having the right people around him to make these films um, so he definitely draws on other yeah exactly yeah exactly so like he's but he's very he's very good at doing that like he he gets the right people around to kind of create and he leans on their strengths and that's the sign of a good director to be able to harness all these the talent and produce you know and 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 rely on their talents to uh to do the job for you because that's what they're hired for right so but he does have this kind of guerrilla style approach and i kind of like that generally with anyway with directors but i feel like this could also has it seems like this has been his undoing in, early on in his career because I think that's the, that was the problem with Eaten Alive is that he was being very gun ho with stuff and there was the producer got worried and he started trying to call the shots and they ended he ended up actually leaving Toby Hooper ended up leaving the project um, even though he's still billed as the director he left because and the producer ended up edi- editing it together. Um, and there's like he he went and did this other film, but that then fell through, and that didn't happen. So there's this. It feels like this when you look at his career, he he, I think he rubs people up the wrong way, and I think like this is what happens when we. I mean, jumping ahead to Poltergeist, but my my opinion of it is that's why I believe Spielberg had to take hold of the reins because I think you've got somebody like Hooper's somebody that is ad hoc he'll shoot things off the cuff whereas Spielberg is very meticulous and he has to have shots in a certain way and I feel like that would have that would have clashed you know when it came to on the set and I think that's why Spielberg ended up having to take over the shoot personally like none of it's on record you know so I'm I'm kind of filling in the gap so I you know everyone believes it's a Spielberg film having watched it recently in order uh, to do the podcast coming up I feel that really strongly as well, um, particularly as I've been going on the Hooper journey uh, as well. Like there are elements, there are elements there that's Hooper for sure, um, but it's a Spielberg film. It's just everything about it smacks of it. Um, but there you go. Like that's that's for another podcast. But my my point was more like it's just interesting watching Hooper's journey in this in this period because I feel like he. In this instance, it's a studio. It's a studio-funded TV series. It's, he's got a bigger budget. 
um, and he feels restrained in this point like he feels like he's trying to control stuff a lot more and I think because of the flop of the one before I think he had to almost do a bit of a paint by numbers approach to it and go back to basics and go right I'm just going to tick the boxes here I'm just going to do this 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 yeah and and he did it and it was successful and off the back of it we get the fun house which to me is is a bit of a forgotten gem um, and I feel like he really comes into his own in that in 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 that movie. Um, it's it got dubbed as a bit of a slasher film, which I think is a bit wrong because it's not. It's a lot of slasher films came out at that time, but it's not. It is kind of its own movie in its own right. I think. Um, and I and I enjoyed watching that movie. I think it's good. But that again, people can listen to that one in my next podcast. Um, yeah, so like it's, I just find, I'm just really finding the journey of Toby Hooper's early work quite fascinating, basically. Cool. Um, so with that said, I think we're probably done and dusted with the, uh, the our chat on Sam's lot, and uh, we will bow out there, I believe. Um, thanks again for everyone listening to us, and hope you kind of enjoyed our rants and ravings as we kind of ploughed through this one. Let us know your thoughts as well. If you maybe you did grow up on this, and maybe this to you is a classic, and you feel like it deserves a bit more merit than we've given it, we'd love to hear from you. Um, until uh, yeah yeah well exactly like you know is it that you know is there something we're missing about it because to us it does feel a bit dated uh admittedly watching it and um i i challenge mark commode's uh, appraisal of it because i feel i feel like there are better stephen king adaptations than this one uh personally um but until then i'm i'm your host as always uh for the seasons of horror podcast or muerte and I was joined uh, for this particular session on Salem's Lot by Nick Alford. Thank you very much, buddy. Pleasure, mate, always. Until next time, goodbye. You're listening to the Surgeons of Horror podcast. Music supplied by Peter Nezik. For more discussions or podcasts, head over to surgeonsofhorror.com or head over to our Facebook and Twitter sites for the latest news and updates.